Okay, this is my first time speaking in the amphitheater. It's our third Sunday, and uh, it's nice to be up here. It's nice to be talking to you about real things. Um, all year long, well, a year and a half, for those of you that aren't part of our church, we've been looking at, we started with Leviticus as a blueprint for what the church was supposed to be like. And when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, a blueprint needs a builder. And so the blueprint um, starts to turn into a building because the builder shows up. That's the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He begins to build this incredible building that we call the church, what the church is supposed to be. That's what we've been looking at for the last year, is what is the church supposed to be? So we just finished a series in Ephesians where we said the house that God is building should be a house of thankfulness. We should be grateful for what God has done. It's a house of forgiveness. It's a house of unity where we stick together. It's a house of safety where you can run to us when you're in trouble. We want the world to run to us, don't we? Don't we want them to come to us when they're hurting, when they're destitute, when they're poor, when they're hungry, when they're widows, when they're orphans? Don't we want them to come to us? What does Jesus say in Luke 6? Do not judge, do not condemn. What did he say in John? I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it, to bring life. That's what we should be is this building that God is building. So I want to take this summer... <coughs> And I wanted to look at this, this unusual topic. It's one that's so common to you that we never talk about it. It's the concept of goodness, okay? It's a concept of goodness. <coughs> Forgive me, most of you know I just had surgery. So you get a cough from time to time. <laughs> so it's this concept of goodness and when you look at what's happening at so many of our megachurches around the country and some of our denominations, and some of you read the Southern Baptist report that came out, and, and that just breaks my heart. Sometimes I sit at my desk and I just weep. Lord, I'm so sorry that we have done so much harm to this gift, incredible gift that you've given us called the gospel, that we have these men, and I'm not going to hide behind it, that we have these men that have been abusing people. And that just, the, one of the reasons I wanted to become a pastor, some of you have heard my story. If you want to hear it, let me know. We'll have coffee. I never wanted to be a pastor. I'd been under pastors my whole life that were so controlling and dominating, and I didn't want anything to do with that, what I would consider to be abusive. So when I finally, uh, I told the Lord 45 years ago when I turned to him, two conditions for me to become a Christian. One is you better be real. I'm going to be very angry. He agreed. Number two, I'm never going to be a pastor. And he agreed. It just only took me 35, 30 years to change my mind on that. He didn't push me. But I changed my mind because I wanted to know what it would be like to be a pastor who's a loving pastor, not a pastor who's a judgmental pastor and a condemning pastor. I'd had my share of that. I went to church because I had kids. I preferred the classroom. It's safer there. You get out into the church, there's no safety none. I hear your stories coming to me. And so I have wrestled for the last year and a half with you on what does it look like to be a safe church, a church that is really driven by that desire to be holy, a church just driven by that desire to be Christ-like, loving, kind, all of that. 
I look at the way Jesus handled the woman caught in adultery, the Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus, uh, the prostitute washing his hair with her feet, on and on and on. That's the type of pastor I want to be, and that's the type of church I want to have. That's not easy to build because Satan is throwing things at us all the time, and, and just in case Satan takes a break, culture does not. They keep coming after us in every way. And right now, we're going to be the object of hatred for a whole lot of people. Okay? So how do we respond in love, not retaliation? So this summer, I thought, the answer, a lot of people have done work on this. I'm not the first one. I'm borrowing from a whole bunch of people. Michael Crouch, culture maker, or culture building. Uh, uh, Scott McKnight, a, house, a church called Tove. All of that. You have all these people at work who are saying, what, is a, what does a good church look like? But it does center around this concept of goodness, which we haven't looked at yet. So I want to take this, this summer and look at this concept of goodness. Okay, in the Old Testament, you have three words, Hebrew words, that they, they, they're woven all throughout the scriptures. Mark, two weeks ago, talked about the backstory. How many of you were here to hear Mark? Oh, good, a, a good bunch of you. You have to know the backstory in order to make sense of our present story. How can I tell you that we're to be a spiritual uh, temple if you don't know what a temple is you have to go back into the old testament to figure out what that is okay how can i tell you to be a sacrifice if you don't know what a sacrifice is you have to go back into the old testament to figure out what that is how can i tell you that you're a priest if you don't know what a priest is you have to go back into the old testament so our backstory is the old testament that's the foundation for who we are and what we think and so when we get into the Old Testament, we see these wonderful truths all woven throughout there. The problem is, is that most of you, when you, in fact, when I said that we're going to study Leviticus, it's one of the funny, funny moments in pastoral ministry. Several people came to me afterwards and said, have you actually read Leviticus? <laughs> when you read Leviticus, ah, oh, it's so hard to read, isn't it? It's rule after rule after rule after rule after rule after rule after rule. Lots and lots of commands. And what we did was we looked underneath the commands and said, let's just take a peek at why those commands are there. Because the most incredible covenant God ever made, any God ever made with a people group, was at the beginning of that. When he said, if you will obey me, I will make you a kingdom of priests. Is there anything more wonderful than that? Priests, on behalf of whom? The world. I will make you a holy nation. They're slaves. They're slaves a month before they were in slavery. And now they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai on a sand dune. And God said, I'm going to make you a holy nation. Not a better nation a holy nation, which means you will be different than the surrounding nations so that they will come to you. That's what priesthood is all about. The moment I say you're a sacrifice or a priest, you know what your first response should be? Not to look in the mirror. That's a wasted exercise. Is to look around and say, who am I a priest or a sacrifice on behalf of? It's the world. That's who. That's who. So, it's the most wonderful covenant. That covenant is repeated in 1 Peter. That's the covenant that underlies the entire Bible. And out of that covenant comes Leviticus, this blueprint for what God desired. But it's not captured in the commands. 
It's captured in the reason and the movement away from what the world was doing. Every chapter in Leviticus takes the world history in a different direction, every one. One example, don't drink the blood because life is in the blood. The world thought the blood was evil. Well, if we didn't have that one chapter, how would we understand the blood of Christ? So we went through that. Well, now I'm going to give you three more things that come together all throughout the Old Testament. Think of them as these ideas are woven all throughout the prophets and the legal literature, all throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs. In fact, we're going to see three or four Psalms today. And these concepts, they come together. But there's three of them, but they they weave together so that they produce. You know what I love about preaching here at the amphitheater? The same thing I love about getting up as soon as it starts to get light. I start hearing the birds. Can you hear the birds like I hear them? They're yelling in my ears. Is that great? There they all are. I got my own audience right here. (laughs) Okay, so these three concepts, they weave together like a rope, a thread, and that thread produces movement, okay? One is called the reeve motif. In English, R-I-B, but it's a soft B, V, reeve motif. And that's the word that just simply means justice. It's where you find in all the lawsuit imagery. And the lawsuit imagery is all over the Old Testament. You see, God is suing two groups of people. He's suing the Israelites for breaking the covenant, and he's suing the gods for leading them astray. Let me just give you one example in Isaiah. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Isaiah 42 and 43, because you see this lawsuit happening right in front of our eyes. In Isaiah 42, this is what God says. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. I am God, I get to be God, and you do not. He can do whatever he wants. Okay? And then right after that, in verse 18, he says, he's talking to Israel, and he says, hear, you deaf. Look, you blind and see. Who is blind but my servant? This is Israel. He's calling them deaf and blind. Okay? And, and deaf like the messenger that I sent. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. He tells his own people, you're deaf and blind. You're idiots. You're knuckleheads. You're losers. Whatever word you want to put in there. Paul says it this way, quoting from Psalm 3. There's none righteous, not even one. But then God goes on in chapter 43, verse 8. And this is a picture of a courtroom. He's calling all the gods to account. And he's bringing in his witnesses. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind. Lead out ears, those who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of the gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them, let the gods bring out their witnesses to prove they were right. So that others may hear and say, it's true what these gods are saying. Just bring out one witness And we'll admit that the gods were right. Just one. And then he says, the Lord says, but you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses, you deaf and dumb people. 
You are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe in me and understand that I, God, am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I, not for some foreign God among you, and you are my witnesses. There it is right there. You see that reeve, that Hebrew word reeve, it's woven all throughout there. All throughout all of the literature, God is suing. He's suing the Israelites because they broke the covenant. And what they should have done was be held penalized. If we move purely to justice, it's all over. But remember the tension between justice and grace. Okay? Jesus, we see it so clear in Jesus' teaching. If you have gotten angry, you've committed murder. Has anybody been angry in the last month? Let me see. Come on, hold it up. Yeah, that's what I thought. The rest of you are lying. Guess what? You just admitted to being a church of murderers. I could do the same with if you've lusted after somebody or an adulterer. Do you think he was joking when he said that? When Paul comes along and says, don't you know that murderers and adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you think he's joking? No. If you go strictly with the truth side of it, guess what? You don't stand a chance. Not one of us. But the moment you move to the other side with grace, we see the cross. And all of a sudden, we see how we don't stand a chance, but God can make it happen. And so you have this reef motif. We have another one. It's called the Hebrew word. You have used this one because it's so fun to say. And you get your money's worth. Chesed. Chesed. I love that term. It's God's incredible loving kindness. He never, ever, ever will move and do what he's not supposed to do or not what he promises because of his loving kindness, his commitment to his own covenant. Chesed. And the third one is the word for goodness. It's called tov. Tov is goodness. Okay, so what you see is you see these three blend together. Because of his loving kindness, he commits to justice, reef, and he commits to goodness, tov, and they're interlocked all the way through the scriptures. They're interlocked. And that becomes the model of what I was talking about sitting right here. If we move toward justice and we get everything right, then we lose a lot of people. If we move toward grace and don't worry about truth, then we lose a lot of people. But because of the love that God is building within us and the commitment to love people, we balance that sense of justice and goodness. Then these wonderful things come about. So I'm going to read to you some psalms so that you can see it for yourself. These are psalms that you're used to seeing. And look what we learn about God's goodness. That's what I want you to focus on today. Starting next, we're going to take each aspect of goodness that we see in the Bible and bring it into our church and our churches. And for those of you that are visitors, maybe you can sense it and take it back to your own church and listen to how goodness plays a role. You see, the answer to uh, childhood victims of sexual assault is not a law. The answer to childhood victims of sexual assault is good marriages. The answer to divorce it's not better counseling. That'll help. Don't get me wrong. We use counselors all the time. The answer is good marriages. That's the answer. 
That's the answer. And so the best thing we can do as a church is to bring in this sense of goodness and to really work on it and say, how do we as Dillon Community Church in our own county live that out? Psalm 34, 8. This has come to be one of my favorite psalms. When my first wife was dying, I really focused on verse 18. The Lord is close to or near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, with the abortion laws that we have, this is going to be pertinent to some people that come to our, our state. We're going to have a chance to love people in ways that we haven't thought of before. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are, they may not even realize it. They could be angry. Who knows what they're feeling, ashamed. But they still need the Lord to be close to them because they're crushed. But if you move back, verse 8, it's one you've heard. Taste. Did you know you could taste the Lord? I love that. We did a series several Advents ago on the five senses. The children want us to do it on senses. You can taste, you can see, you can smell. You have all this imagery in there using the five senses. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That the Lord is good. That means it's visceral. That's what that means. It's tangible. They should be able to taste us and see that we are good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. That means he's safe. That's what that means. And you can taste him. So if you go on over to Psalm 118, another very, very, very good psalm. Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures for how long? Forever. So why should we enjoy the Lord's goodness? Because his love, that chesed, there it is right there. It never quits, ever. It never quits. Never does. We go on over to Psalm 145. We find another clue. I know I'm still old-fashioned. I use a Bible. Tried using an electronic one once, and it couldn't move fast enough. Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. How does the Bible start out? The end of the first day, what did the Lord say? This is good. The end of the second day, what did he say? This is good. The end of the third day, what did he say? This is good. The fourth day, this is good. The fifth day, this is good. Then he makes humans. What does he say? Ah, this is very good. And then he steps back on day seven and looks at everything he's made, and he goes, this is very good. You see, all of creation, including us, are endowed with goodness. That's not the problem. Sin is the problem. We are endowed with goodness. We should remember that. And so when we turn to Christ, we can live out that goodness. So every place we see God being good, we can bring that into the church because we're capable of that. So in Psalm 145, it says, He has compassion on all that he has made. We, could have, we should have compassion on all of creation. Now, it's pretty easy to love this, isn't it? You love seeing this out here? 
Isn't this great? There are, there, not every place in the world gets to see what we see. You know that, right? You guys are spoiled. I travel to, thir- to uh, developing nations all over the world, and they don't get to see what I see. We should have compassion on everything. So then if we go back to Psalm 100, we find another clue. And I just picked a few. I could have I I picked hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses. I chose them out, all of Psalm 100, out of Psalms. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. There's that word love. That's it. His commitment to you because of the promise that he made when he created you. The Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And so we have a model right here with God himself of what it's like for us to live. We've intertwined are these three ideas, and we're going to need this to the full extent of our abilities and wits in the coming days. Okay, we're going to need it as a church. We have at the center is this concept of chesed, where his love is so vibrant and faithful and spectacular and committed, he'll never deviate. And then on one side is reeve, justice. On the other side is tov, goodness. Both are present at the same time. How we navigate that, I don't know. We're going to need all your help to navigate it. I'm not that wise. I can just give you the theology. I don't, I don't know how to work it out. Okay, I figure out my own way in coffee shops talking to people. But as a church, is that going to be a great discussion? Okay, I hear all of you going, ah, oh, we just became the most liberal abortion state. Okay, so what? That's the opportunity that we have because we're going to have all some hurting people here. And maybe, just maybe, we can show them what that goodness of God looks like. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us not only wisdom, faithfulness. Solomon had wisdom, but he didn't do anything with it. More than that, Lord, you've given us courage. You've given us your spirit. You've given us a way to navigate it. You've given us a model. We can look at you in the Old Testament. We can look at Jesus in the New Testament. We can look at the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. We can look at the authors, and we can look at the psalmists and the authors of the Proverbs. We can look at the prophets. We can look at the apostles, and they're all doing the same thing. They're trying to figure out what this looks like in a fallen world. And, Lord, we have a very fallen world. And, Lord, we know that we have hurting people. So, God, as we spend this summer together looking at your goodness, help us to figure out creative ways of bringing that goodness into our own church. Thank you for being a very good God, because you are good. In your name we pray. Amen.